0: Would you open God's precious holy word to 1 Samuel 27? We've come to chapter 27. David, at this point in time, has been in exile about seven years. Puts him middle to late 20s. And sometimes, The servants of God just grow weary, especially of the same stuff that attacks us over and over. And it seems like we can never overcome certain things or even certain enemies in our lives. David has reached that point. He's had assurances. We've seen them in previous chapters. He's had assurances that really nothing is going to happen to him. I mean, he has to hide, he has to run. Uh, and he, he obviously is weighted with the burden of leadership. He has 600 men and their families who have to go wherever he goes. And so he understands the uh, encumbrance of making sure that whatever he whatever decision he makes won't have a negative impact on his men or on their families. So he has to carefully choose his uh, locations where he camps because if it happens to him from the sword of Saul's armies, it'll happen to his men and most likely in that day to all of their families, their children, their wives. So it's... Uh, It's really unimaginable to think of how David is on the run. He's the rightful king. God has sent people at the right times in the right places to assure him that the people are growing. He is growing in favor with the people, not really trying to, but just taking care of them, making sure that uh, the enemy doesn't steal their crops or, or hurts them in any way. And he has been the one who has been the the just leader. He hasn't done the underhanded things that Saul has done. He's not the murderer Saul has shown himself to be. And so in a growing sense, the people are beginning to realize that indeed David is the anointed of the Lord, but Saul is still on the scene. For seven years, he's been on the run from Saul under the guidance and hand of the Lord, but he has also not only looked at, have, to have had to look after himself and his family, but as I said, his soldiers and their families. There may have been as many as two thousand people in the greater and general encampment of David and his men. When you count their, uh, when you count their attendants, and you. Uh, their 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 servants and when you count the the family members of the soldiers and their children. So it's not an easy thing. Uh, logistically, you have to go somewhere where they can be provided for. And we saw, I think, in the last couple of chapters how the people recognized how David and his army were protecting him and they began to they begin to pay tribute in a sense to David uh, to try to help him and his army and their families survive. But David is growing weary. Seven years he has run from Saul, hiding not only himself, but his entire encampment. The burden of caring for his soldiers and their families and knowing that if Saul's greater army of the 3000 elect men, chosen men were to ever find them, they they would be unmerciful. So the hiding places are beginning to be more difficult. He's come to realize that most people are treasonous toward him. People betray him. He goes and helps people and then they betray him. Saul is right on his tail and they tell Saul, yes, he was here and he's headed there. So it's been a tough, a tough seven years Unimaginable, I suppose, for 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 us uh, to try to think of all that David had suffered. So here we are at this point in time. David doesn't realize that in about three years he will become the king of ten tribes uh, of uh, of several of several tribes, and then others will join a short time later, and he'll be the king of the whole. Israelite nation, he, can't, he doesn't he doesn't know that. And he's despondent, he's tired, probably somewhat depressed. So here we go, when we think about it, David makes the decision for him and his troop, his entourage to depart and leave the land. David said to himself, now anytime you talk to yourself, you're, you're going to the wrong authority. Especially if you're in the Lord's Word. David is overthinking his problem. Now this is his process. I'm better off living with the enemy than I am living here with King Saul. I have a better chance for my men and me in the land of the Philistines, than I do over here. I can live by my wit. I don't have to just live by my sword all the time. I can figure this thing out if I don't have the shadow of Saul hovering over me all the time. So he says to himself, Yahweh didn't say it to him, David said this to himself. Now I shall perish one day in the hand of Saul. Yahweh has told him time and time again using people, other people, to inspire them to encourage David and to tell him that he's not going to die. He's going to be the king. But now look, he just comes to this conclusion. I'm tired and Saul is going to finally kill me one day. There's nothing better for me than that I shall escape. To the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in all the border of Israel, and I shall escape from his hand. Now you'll notice the me's and eyes and himself and all that. This is a this is a tired man, this is a despondent man who at this moment in time after seven years is beginning to suffer from diminished faith. There have been a lot of examples of that in the Bible, but two that, two that really stick out in my mind, number one is Sarah, Sarah, Sarah he and Abram, God had promised them a child, and they figured out a way themselves to make it happen. You know the story. Sarah gives her handmaiden to Abraham, and any child that she has by Abraham, by law, in the land where they lived, would be her child. And so, being at their age, they just make the decision this is how we're going to work this out for God. A lot of people like that are gonna work it out for God. Let me tell you, God is sovereign. I'm, 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 I'm less than a, all of us, we're less than a speck. There's, you know, we ask the question with the psalmist, what is man that you're mindful of him? Against the backdrop of the canopy of God's great creation and then you just have to downscale and downscale and downscale and downscale and downscale until you get to a galaxy and then you get to a solar system and then you get to a planet and you get to a people and you get to a little old unimportant person in an unimportant land at an unimportant time when there's so many other greater, seemingly greater things in the universe. Why in the world have you condescended to me? Why are you mindful of me? Too many times we try to answer questions that we have ourselves. Instead of Job suffered that a little bit. And God came to me and said, Well, if you're such a hot shot, why don't you create the foundations? How did, how are the foundations of the world created? How can I make every snowflake six points and make one pattern after another and none none are ever the same? How are you going to do those things? Have you entered into the greatness of the huge beasts of the world? How would you make one of those, Job? Abraham and Sarah decided they were going to answer their own question and, and and tell God that they're going to help him out. Let me tell you something, God doesn't need any help. He doesn't even need me. He doesn't need anything. The aseity of God is the doctrine of of the, the self-sustenance of God. He has all that he could ever possibly, and he has no needs, but that he could ever possibly be is all encapsulated within his glorious self. It pleased him to create everything. And so it was created for his pleasure. It has pleased him within his creation to call to himself those whom he would redeem. It is all by the pleasure of God. And Abraham and Sarah come along and they say, God is not working fast enough, and he's he just doesn't. He's he's kind of like our president trying to walk up the steps of a of a of a jetliner, and the old boy just needs some help. God, we got this, and so he takes the handmaid. You know the Egyptian handmaid. You know all that. There was Elijah. Elijah is considered by the Hebrews to be the greatest of the prophets. With all courage and boldness, he confronted Ahab. He prophesied against the the prophets of Baal and against Jezebel herself, who was a priestess of Baal. And he boldly went up onto Carmel. You know the story, and all the, the four hundred and fifty of them, and they were all killed. And Yahweh proved Himself to the presence of the people, and Elijah cried out, "If Yahweh's God serve Him, and if not, serve the other God." Great spiritual victory for Elijah. The, up to that point, the pinnacle of his service to the Lord. He comes down off that mountain. He's drained emotionally and physically. Can you imagine digging all of, digging building all those altars and bringing in all that wood and pouring all this water and then drawing your sword after the fire came down and it just drains you emotionally and spiritually to see the power of the Lord right there in front of your face and then you draw a sword and you start chasing prophets of Baal all over the place until they're all and you're slashing away and they're all dead and this guy's tired. He's drained, and he comes down off of that mountain, and Jezebel sends him a promise, and she says, I'm going to kill you. And so here come the chariots of Jezebel, and he runs. He runs, according to the Bible, for about 90 miles. Now, how many people can run 90 miles? I guess if you're scared enough, I'd, I'd, the first 3,000 yards would do me in, and I'd be dead. <laughs> he runs until he can run no more. And he collapses under the tree. And he says, I wanna die, I'm no good. This thing ain't working, God, just kill me. God doesn't answer him. Here's a man totally spent, physically, spiritually, emotionally. He has nothing left. There's no juice in his existence for anything. And so all he can do is think about how he has failed. There's nothing he can do. Everything that has been done just seems to be a failure. And he's defeated on every end. God, I just, just kill me. I just, there's no sense living. Just kill me. The Lord doesn't say a word. He sends an angel to minister to him. He feeds him. Here's what the angel says to him. He says, the journey is too great for you. That happens to us, I can tell you. There comes a time when you have gone one step more than you really can, and the journey is too great. So Elijah was allowed to sleep. He fed him some more, went back to sleep, made his way to a cave, rested in the cave, nourished him, and as he came back to himself physically, he was then able to regain himself emotionally and then spiritually and just at the right time the Lord you know he, he, he sent an earthquake he sent all those things and then whispered to him your job is not done you filled your belly you're back to who you are really and I have several things more for you to do before I call you up into my presence Now, David is sort of there. He's sort of there. His problem is seven years of running from Saul, he's now thinking of himself. Where's the word of God in this? Where's the appeal to Yahweh? It's not there. It has been there up until now. To go into the battlefield, he would inquire of Yahweh. He had the priest... Who was there? The prophet who was with him? And he would ask of the Lord. He even had the counsel of his men when it came, when he came into the presence of Saul, and Saul didn't know that he was there. His men counseled him to just go ahead and kill Saul. But standing against the general counsel of his soldiers, he wouldn't do it. I will not touch God's anointed. He was strengthened by those who told him, you're going to be the king. Just hang in there. The hardest thing to do is to just hang in there. It's very hard. So David looks within himself like Abraham did, like Elijah did and others. And he says, you know, I just just need to take care of this. The time has come for me just to get out of here. He leaves the promised land and he goes into the land of the Philistines. David arose, and he and the 600 men who were with him crossed over to Achish, the son of Maach, the king of Gath. So he's not where he's supposed to be, really. He has left the land of Israel. He thinks he has solved his problem. Now he can rest. He can can unburden his mind. And he can live by his wits. All right, so then, coming into this place with this large entourage of people, he requests a city in which they all could live, okay? Okay. David dwelt with Achish in Gath. He and his men, each man and his household, David, his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal the Carmelitess. It was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, and he did not continue to search for him. So that part of the plan seems to have worked. David said to Achish. If now I've found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in one of the country towns, and I shall dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So David takes the diplomatic route. He knows that the Philistines are strong in the royal city. So this is not the best place for them to live. So he just makes a suggestion. I'm not worthy. We are, we're Israelites. You're the great Philistines. We, we're not worthy to be in the royal city. Just, just let us have one of the villages, one of the outer places that would seemingly be unimportant. Akish gave him Ziklag on that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah until this day. All the way through the reign of the sons of David, they never lost property rights or the deed to that place. The number of days which David dwelt in the field of the Philistines was some days, it's hard to translate exactly, and four months. So they find a place where the 2,000 or so of them can settle down and they have obviously complete control of the the, the town that to which they were given or that was given to them. David will still continue to do things by his wit. And we'll see what that means when he comes to report the raids that he makes. David and his men would raid the Geshurites and the Gizrites and the Amalekites for those tribes were the inhabitants of the land. Now these were the people whom Joshua never defeated. They were never run out of the land. And so David engages them. Who were of old, as you go to shore, even to the land of Egypt. So he would raid them. He's going to live by his wit. David would smite the inhabitants of the land and leave neither man nor woman alive. He would take their sheep and their cattle and their donkeys and their camels and their clothing and he would return and come to Achish. That doesn't sound very noble, does it? He's living by his wit. Now he's more in control himself and he's not having to be so dependent in any direction including that direction he doesn't he thinks he doesn't have to worry about Saul anymore and akish would say well what you been up to today where did you raid today now here was the deal that akish thought was on the table david's deal with the king was that he would rush into the outer regions of the land of Israel and that he like the Philistines had been doing the Philistines had been raiding the hapless helpless Israelites who had no weapons no training for war they just had cattle and and uh, they just had uh, their crops <clears throat> and just at the time of, of uh, slaughter or, or shearing the sheep or bringing in the harvest, just when everything was right where it needed to be, all the work had been done. The Philistines would go in, they would raid the Israelites, steal all their stuff, and leave them to starve, kill many of them. So David's deal was look, I'm just tired of this, I'm just gonna do this myself as well. So Achish thinks that he's raiding the Israelites. Where did you raid today? David would say, oh, I was in Judah. I was in southern Judah. That's not true. See, he wasn't there. And against the south of the Jachmelites, against the south of the Kenites, David would leave alive neither man nor woman to bring to Gath, saying, lest they tell about us. Saying, so David has done, and so is his manner all the days which he has dwelt in the field of Philistines. He killed them all because he didn't want them to tell on him. Killed them all. Man, men and women, killed them all. Didn't leave them alive, didn't want anybody to report what he was really doing. What he was really doing was raiding the Philistines. And not the Israelites. And Akish believed David, saying he has greatly abhorred his people Israel and he will be to me a bondsman forever. Achish thinks that he's gained not just an ally, but he thinks he's gained a servant in David and David's men. Now these men were really something and one of these days we'll get to the portion of scripture that describes especially that troop of 39 men. They were the mighty men of David. One of, them, one of them killed a thousand with his spear. One of them heard that a lion was terrifying a village in Judah and he dug a trap for it and the lion was down there in the trap and he jumped down there himself and killed the lion. So these guys were tough. And they were great. And they were the core of his fighting men, his warriors, his soldiers. They could move quickly and they were fierce. These were great warriors under the leadership of the great King David. But this was not one of the brightest times of his life. Why? Because he left the land over which he had been promised to be king. He had left the people over which he had been promised to be king. He had walked away from all of the things that had been promised to him because he said to himself. He convinced himself. I had counsel one time from an older preacher and I've never forgotten it. He was talking about a decision that he was facing. He was pastor of a great church Big church. And he had gone into full-time evangelism and he had crusades all over the world. A very popular, well-known Southern Baptist evangelist. I had him about five times in my churches. And a a great, tremendous church in Florida wanted him back in the pastorate to come and be their pastor. He called me about struggling with it. Talked to me, here I am, I'm nobody. And he's this big shot and he's asking me what I think, you know. And we prayed about it. He called me back, he said, I'll tell you. Now this church, it's really kind of sad because they, and this is I guess the way mega churches do it. In anticipation, because of the deal they had on the table for him, In anticipation of his becoming their pastor, because early in their talks, this former pastor evangelist told them up front. He said, "Well, if I, if the Lord is in this and I come, I will have to have the latitude of bringing in my own staff. I probably won't maintain or keep any of the staff that you have." So they decided to go ahead and dismiss all the staff, the ministry staff. There were about 12 of them. And he called me and he said, you know, I had no peace about this thing. He was at the time in a crusade in South America, as I recall. He was talking about how great the people responded to his crusade. As he said, I have no peace about this at all, this church. And he said, I'll tell you, he said, they even, they even fired their staff based on an early conversation that we had. And he said, I know this looks bad and sounds bad, but I, I can't go. I can't leave what I'm doing. And I called the chairman back who was, not an, who was not a happy camper after the conversation and explained to this man with weeping and tears that he could not leave what he was doing. And here's what he said to me. He said, you know, Charles, he said, I'll tell you something. When you don't know what to do, you'd better not do anything at all. And I can understand that. Uh, having gone so far in the ministry because so long in the ministry because too many times you'll say to yourself or you'll listen to counsel and that's all the counsel you will hear and you won't wait for the counsel from above and it takes a while sometimes to have that warm fuzzy feeling in your heart that this is the way I need to go. That doesn't just come all at once. The Lord, the Lord in working his will in the life of a person also is working in the lives of thousands of other people that all are connected somehow to the decision that, to which he leads his servant. That's hard for us to understand sometimes. When you don't know what to do, you better not do anything at all. Look at what it led David into. It led him into a life of cruelty. It led him at this point, at this stage, it led him into a time of, of uh, untruth. Just by living according to his wit, despondent, tired, Depressed? Let me tell you something. That is not the time to make an experience, a, a decision. That's the time to wait on an angel to bring you some sort of spiritual casserole. And give you a feather bed spiritually to rest on. And if you just wait, God will work it out. David in the land of the Philistines. And David said to himself, We'll stop there, let's pray. Oh, Father, teach us patience and self discipline. Strengthen and increase our faith, especially, oh, Lord. Teach us to draw upon our faith and to wait upon you that we might mount up with wings as eagles, to run in our race and not be weary, to walk and to not faint. Father, give us this special strength and discipline in our lives to wait upon you and to be very careful. When we say something to ourselves. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for being here. God bless you.